If you have your Bibles, let's open them to Ezra 9. Next week, Michael will pick up and conclude the book of Ezra in chapter 10. And then the following week, Bill will pick up and conclude the series in Ezra. What I mean by that is Bill will take and go all the way back to chapter 1 and then review all that we have learned of God, of ourselves, of this walk of faith. And by the way, that means in two weeks we'll have the opportunity to hand you the microphone and for you to be able to share with others how God has changed you in the process of our study. I love these weekends because it reminds us, you know, we don't gather and we don't submit ourselves to the Word of God just so that we know the Word of God, but that the Word of God changes us. It transforms us. We're different having applied and lived this Word by the power of the Spirit. And so we get a chance to do that here in two weeks. You might keep that in mind if you would like to share. Last Monday night, as uh, our community group gathered, as we do every Monday night, we gathered for a meal as we do on a regular basis, uh, the meal took on greater meaning because many in the group had chosen to accept Bill's challenge to fast on that 24-hour period on Monday. And as we debriefed that fast, it was so good to see that what that produced, even as Bill said, was way beyond physical hunger. It produced a greater awareness of our dependence on God. It produced, can I say this, a deeper gratitude for who he is and all he is because it, we, were, we were made more aware of our need for him moment by moment. I know Bill heard from a number of you that experienced something similar. What I want to say about that is it cost us something to engage the text. See, when we come to the Bible with our whole heart, we come not just to say, hey, that was a good lesson, I learned it, now I know. No, we're going to come to it and say, that's what God has said about himself, what God says about me, and this is what I must do, believe, submit myself to. You see, we come wholeheartedly to the scripture that it will change us. Now, we're going to do something similar on the back end of this message today. I'm going to ask you to go beyond understanding the text to actually living the text. It's our prayer we would do that week by week. What I'm going to ask you to do may be actually a little bit harder than even a 24-hour fast. Well, Ezra has made the four-month journey to, to Jerusalem from Babylon. He's been protected by the good hand of God. They made it without being ambushed. We take that lightly, maybe, but you understand they were carrying all that gold and silver. This is a very treacherous route, and the text makes clear to us they were, they were under threat of ambush, but God's good hand brought them safely. Just for a time stamp, would you look at your Bibles and look at chapter 10, verse 9? Notice it says there, so all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day. Now, everybody look up here. You remember in chapter 7, it says they left Babylon on the first of the first month. It was a four-month journey, and they got to Jerusalem on the first of the fifth month. Now, chapters 9 and 10 happen here on the 20th of the ninth month. Everybody with me so far? What I want to say is they, that, that they got there, okay? There's a four and a half month window, and then we open up in chapter nine, verse one, here's what happens. And I do that timestamp to, to, to ask this question, just think about this. 
Uh, what was Ezra doing? Okay, what, what was going on in those four and a half months after he had gotten back until we read what we're about to read in chapter nine, verse one? What do you suppose Ezra was doing for those four and a half months? What do you suppose? Not a trick question. What do you suppose he was doing? Fishing? Did somebody say fishing? No, no. He would, uh, you remember Ezra 7.10? Ezra had set his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to practice the law of the Lord, and to teach the law of the Lord. 7.14, 7.25-26. We have every reason to believe that from the moment he got there, you know, not the moment, but when he got there, through these months, that he had been teaching the word of God to the people of God. And so when we read chapter 9, one of the questions that it will answer is this. What happens when the word of God is taught to the people of God? What happens? Well, that's what we see in Ezra chapter 9. Let's stand together one more time, if you would, please. Uh, Stand together, and I'm going to read Ezra 9. Follow along in your Bibles, and um, somebody in the in the booth or something. I would say this: it's a little getting a little warm in here. At least it is to me. The heat's going, and so if we could get that uh, turned down, we're going to all fall asleep within minutes of me going. I'm going to fall asleep standing up here. Ezra chapter nine: God's word to you and to me this day. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands, according to their abominations, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled, the holy seed, literally, has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. The leaders have been leading in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this, first person, Ezra speaking, when I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me And I sat appalled until the evening offering. They had an evening offering every day right at 3.30. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. As you listen to this prayer, note it's a prayer, but he's also, also, he's teaching as he's praying. It's a proclamation. Since the days of our fathers, to this day, we have been in great guilt And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, and to open shame, as it is this day. But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. 
For we are slaves, yet in our bondage our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land, this is what God said to them, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters to your sons and never seek their peace or their prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, Since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escape remnant as this. Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there's no remnant nor anyone who escape? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We have been left and escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For no one can stand before you because of this. Father, add your blessing to this reading and now study of your word. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Thomas Leverett, he's a, a New York-based videography filmmaker, he, he made that. It's got 14 million views, I'm sure some of you have seen it, but you, know, you took this camera and this lens, would, 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 it could show you uh, what, you know, when the sun shines on you, ultraviolet rays, how they hit you and how they affect you. You see, you can't see it with the naked eye, but with that lens, you go, whoa, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was there. You know, it's kind of like the squishy stuff you put in your mouth years ago to see where the plaque was, and you know, all, all your, it's all over... I thought of that when I read Ezra 9. Because if you ask the question, what happens when the word of God is taught to the people of God? At least Ezra 9 tells us this, at least this happens. The word of God reveals the unfaithfulness of the people of God. Shows us what we often don't see. Reveals our sin. Such a weighty, weighty text. I'm going to go through it, and I'm going to do it in three, what, three parts. Ezra's response, Ezra's prayer, and then our prayer. I said we're going to do something to live the text. We're going to pray. 
Here's what prayer is a confession. I'll talk about it in a moment. It's just a confession. And I'll invite us to do the same. Let's go through it. I'm going to walk you through the passage, Ezra 9. The first part is 1 through 4. It's Ezra's response, okay? They came back and they came and said, you know, the people have married uh, unfaithfully. They've married the people of the land. I I want to make this note. God's people have always been called to be a distinct, set-apart people. The word holy, in the New Testament it says be holy from, the word holy means set apart and set unto God. Distinct, different. That's been true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. You've got to keep in mind where it could be distinct. Israel, the nation here, was to be distinct because God had chosen them, called them for a purpose. Through that distinct nation, God would send the Messiah who would be a blessing to all nations, you see. It's the same, it's true of the church today. And one of the ways I want you to think about this, because oftentimes I think the, church, you know, the Christians, the church gets a bad rap, kind of like, well, you guys just think you're better than us. Or you just, you're so intolerant. Why don't you do what the, we do? The war, you know, understand it this way. It's like if you were going in for, for, for open heart surgery and the doctors and the nurses and the technicians, you know what they would do before they went in to operate on you? They would differentiate themselves from you. They would be distinct from, they would be set apart from what? All the germs, all the diseases, etc. Why? Because they're called to go in and heal you. And it's true for the church. I, I want us to understand this. The less different we are than the world, the less helpful we are to the world. The less distinct we are from those who who would not submit themselves to the word of God. Listen, the less beneficial, the less blessing we can be to them. This problem was not an interracial marriage problem. It wasn't a skin color or language. This challenge, this problem for Israel, it was a spiritual faithfulness issue. God told them, if you marry these people who worship other gods, you do understand that you then are going to end up worshiping other gods, little g, sacrificing your kids, burning them on the fire. And they did. So again, not a, you can't marry someone of a different race, not, not any of that. This is about spiritual fidelity. Ezra's response, boy, when he heard this, was the norm. See, this was a normal response to grief and an expression of grief and mourning. To the degree that we think, wow, he over-responded is the degree to which we don't see sin as God sees sin. And that is the understatement of the century. We don't see sin as God sees sin. But we have a man in Ezra who's, who's reflecting it more than many of us do. See, his tearing of his clothes, his mourning, his grief. That's, just, that's his response to sin. And by the way, that's infinitesimal compared to God's response to sin and unfaithfulness. Well, there's another reason maybe why they, 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 they're so, in, maybe we, they can be less appalled by sin than we ought it's implied in the text, and I just want you to think about this for a moment. It seems like these people have been living like this for a long time. You see, the people, notice that verse 5, it says, the exile's unfaithfulness. So the ones who married foreigners weren't the ones that were left behind when they were carried away into captivity. It's the guys that came with Zerubbabel. God brought them graciously back to the land. And when in the land, what did they do? 
they married foreign wives. And it seems, because we know this, between chapter 8 and chapter 9, there's a gap of some 60 years, that they married foreign wives, they had kids, some of the people died, and their kids grew up married foreign wives. In other words, what I'm saying is, the, the, and they did all this in the land. See, they're in the land. And so the consequence of their sin was not felt immediately. I would suggest that there were a number of people in here who married foreign wives and, quite frankly, had a great life. Life just went on. Lived to be an old age, died, went on. You see that? And this, I want to suggest, is one of the subtle and deceptive powers of sin. Because the consequence of sin, the consequences of sin are often delayed, the power of sin is often denied. Because the consequences of sin are often delayed, the power of sin is often denied. See, when you and I are unfaithful, when we sin, we... It does, it, it, many, many, I don't say this, most of the times it doesn't cost us immediately. Oh, it will cost us in the end. It will cost us eventually. But it often doesn't cost us immediately. And the enemy of our souls knows that. So that when we choose unfaithfulness, you understand it, it actually satisfies for a moment. But then that which satisfies in time enslaves us. I had a conversation with a gentleman recently and very transparent, honest conversation uh, gifted me with a story of his life and his own journey. He found himself in a position that he never dreamed he would be ever in a million years, but somehow tied even maybe to this idea that, you know, the consequences of sin are immediate. Uh, He said this to me and, and it stayed with me, haunted me. He said, Lloyd, you know, my adultery started with me throwing a paper clip at a co-worker's desk. And that just stays in my head. I flicked a paper clip. Adultery. See, I think that the first guy who married the foreign wife here in Jerusalem... I don't think it caused any ripples. It apparently didn't cause any ripples. Nothing. So the second and the third. So 58, 60 years later, they're just going on. We're still in the land. And I think this, I, I would, it, it may even be that when they married the foreign wife, it, it, there was some financial benefit. Maybe it smoothed some social tension. Who knows? But now, 60 years later, the very line through which the Messiah is to come, that's to be distinct and set apart for Messiah to come through that line, is on the edge of destruction. Further down this line. Well, then we get to Ezra's prayer, verses 5 to 15. I encourage you to go back and read this if if you'd like. An amazing prayer of confession. I'll only make a few comments for us. Ezra 5, he talks about his body language. Can I call it that? He fell. He raised his hands. He cried out. Can I say this? There are times when our body prays better than our words. Not all the time, but certainly here. There are times when it's our body that aligns our hearts before God by kneeling, by prostrate, by raising our hands. Sometimes words are unnecessary. 
when your body's postured in humility and prayer. Verses six and seven, if you reread, you'll note he goes from I to we an hour. I'll simply say this, in this prayer of confession, Ezra identified himself with the sins of the people. And there, there's this part of me, I read it and go, Ezra, you didn't do that. Man, it's their problem. Well, Ezra doesn't see it that way. See, we've got this Western mindset, this Western sense of independence that says, look, I didn't screw up, you screwed up, you got a problem. Ezra saw the national community the, the, the unity of the body. You move us over here into the church now, the unity of the body. And Ezra could say, our sin in this sense, we allowed that to happen. We allowed that to go on. And he identified with that sin. He goes on in verses 10 to 14 uh, I, I love this, or verses 8 and 9, I'm sorry. Um, he says, But now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown. And then he describes it as you've given us a peg in your holy hill. Here's what he's saying in these verses. We don't deserve to be in the land. Oh my, and Ezra's going, oh my, in light of all this, how, why are we even in the land? God, you've given us a moment of grace. You've given us a peg. You know, think of it, it's a foothold. You've given us a tiny foothold because the temple's been rebuilt. We're worshiping there, but it's just a foothold you've given us, a moment to revive. And the key word here, verse nine, is loving kindness. We don't deserve this, but your Hebrew word, hesed, steadfast love, covenant loving kindness, unending faithfulness, hesed, your hesed, has us in this place, though our sins are over our head. That's what he's saying. Says another interesting phrase, in 10 to 14, as he confesses what they've done. Verse, four, uh, verse uh, 13, I love the phrase he uses, after all this has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities. What Ezra says there is, we we have been given less than our sin deserves. Now you want to make a, make a sign and nobody will buy it but be worth having? It'd be that. God, you have requited us less than our sins deserve. If you ever think about this, why are you sitting here today, breathing? Why you got a heartbeat, brainwaves? Why you have the opportunity to hear the word of God, be with the people? You see, we're, we're in a moment of grace. There's never a moment that God has not requited us less than our sin deserves, quite frankly. That we even live and breathe and have our being. Mm, it just moves us to the place of humility. Just dispenses with all pride. He says, you would be just in destroying us. He really meant that. You say, well, then how would God have fulfilled his purpose? God would fulfill his purpose through other Jews. He could do whatever he wants. But Ezra's willing to say, in light of our sin, you could, do, you could wipe us off, God. You'd be just if you did. And then verse 15, O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant. 
as it is this day. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Interesting note about this prayer. He never asks for anything. I think there's times for that kind of prayer. He just confesses. We're unfaithful. And casts himself on the mercy of God. Scholars say this. Chapter 9 is the high, is the high point spiritually of the book. Now, when we read the book, I would suggest that our tendency is to go, I think chapter 6 is the high point because the temple's rebuilt. They're celebrating. It's a party. Because look where they go from chapter 6. <laughs> chapter 8, 9, and 10. No, chapter 9 is the spiritual high point of the book because the people confess their sin. Listen. That's the high point of your life and mine. Because in that moment, we know where we stand and we know we need a Savior and we're humble and we're dependent upon God and we confess our sin. Remember what Ezra's about? He's not about rebuilding the temple. Remember this. He's about, in this chapter, these chapters, reforming the people. Gang, there is no reformation of heart. There is no transformation of heart apart from confession of sin. It doesn't happen. And so Ezra invites us in these moments, I think, in this moment of grace, to confess our sin. Now this might be something we'd do at a prayer meeting. If you want to come tonight, come and do it. But you know what? We said, no, let's do it as a church family. And so I'm going to invite you to put your Bibles down and bow your head in a moment and pray. And I'm going to, inv- I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer And, you know, I'm not trying to twist anyone's arm. I don't have to. I mean, this is the Word of God. The Spirit of God lives in you if you know Christ. And so just trust what the Spirit of God brings to mind. Ezra cries out, oh my God. And you might have that phrase in your mind. Oh my God, I confess. And I'm just going to go through some categories. I'm just going to help us think through some arenas, some categories of life. Don't go digging up like, man, I got to go dig up some stuff. I can't find anything. No, just the Spirit will bring it. Now, John says in 1 John, if we think we have no sin, we're deceived. So if anyone in the room thinks, well, I got nothing, you're deceived. To that degree, you're deceived. And so let the Spirit lead. You know, the psalmist said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. My prayer for us is that the Spirit of God would search your heart and you'd confess. To confess is simply to say, I admit. To confess is to say, I agree with. I agree with you, God, about what you say about this. And so in your mind's eye, May I invite you. You may need to move your lips. I don't know. You need to think it. You can write it down if you want. But confess your sins. Let's confess corporately. Even as I lead us in these moments. Would you bow your head please? Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. And see, God, if there be any hurtful way in us that you might lead us in the everlasting way. Father, as we confess sin this morning, 
we recognize in our confessing that we are saying our sin is inexcusable. Your righteousness is unassailable. And our only hope is your mercy. In what ways have you chosen something other than God to satisfy your deepest needs? For to choose anything other than Him is to be unfaithful. Did you confess that? Are there ways you have sinned, been unfaithful with your mind, your thoughts, with your tongue, your words? Confess that as sin. Have you told any lies, been less than truthful, deceived? Confess your sin. Is there someone you have chosen not to forgive? Is there a root of bitterness growing in your heart? Confess your sin.
in what ways have you failed to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind? Have you or are you throwing any paper clips? Confess your sin. Any lack of gratitude in your soul, forgetting to remember the kindness of God, confess your sin. Any measure of unfaithfulness in stewarding all that God has given you. Confess your sin. God, you have granted us this moment of grace, this peg, that you might enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving. Surely you have requited us less than our sins deserve. We agree with you that these things we have named are inexcusable, they mark our faithlessness. We acknowledge in saying this that your righteousness is unassailable. You are true, right. And oh God, your mercy is our only hope. Amen. Now if you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you do understand that when we confess our sins, what does John say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You do understand that when we confess our sins and agree with God that it's sin, that, that we are forgiven, that our fellowship with God is restored, that he knew it before you thought it and brought it to him. But it's in the confessing, in our agreeing and bringing that brutal honesty of our unfaithfulness, of our sin, 
that we're restored back in, not to relationship, because we're in relationship in Christ, but fellowship with our heavenly Father. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it's ours if you have put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Let's stand together. An appropriate response of worship. We're gonna sing, Come Thou Fount, mindful of these themes of God's grace, our wandering heart, and his goodness to us. You see, when we come to the word of God, yes, it shows us, ooh, you know, what we might not wanna see, but never forget this. In the same moment it shows us that, it always shows us what else? His faithfulness. You know, you look at it and you go, I'm unfaithful to you, but he's faithful. Amen. It always shows us that. And in Christ, we rest in that. Let this song and these words be the reflection of our heart, our benediction to our great God.